Welcome to episode 68 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm a New York Times bestselling author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. So today we're continuing our archetypes discussion with the fatal flaw. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fatal flaw kind of includes <laughs> sort of a lot of different story types, I guess. I mean, obviously the most classic example of a fatal flaw that we can think of is probably Oedipus. Mm-hmm. Or at least that's usually what's taught in classes, like, oh, you know, his his hubris was his fatal flaw. Um, all the old Greek myths, Odysseus, all of them. Mm-hmm. They all have, generally it's pride that is their downfall, <laughs> for sure. Um, but the fatal flaw is, oh, honestly, if the chosen one is kind of a straightforward hero narrative, I would say that the fatal flaw narratives are generally tragedies. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you could think of an exception. No, I mean, if um, a lot of characters have flaws and have, you know, things that they struggle with and wrestle with in the narrative that may even temporarily overwhelm them. But if the core story is that this one flaw is what is going to bring down this character, um, then that's the fatal flaw narrative. And kind of like The Chosen One, I feel like fatal flaw narratives have an element of fate, perhaps, or kind of a preordainedness to them. Um, Often it's, you see this a lot, I think the last time we mentioned the Star Wars prequel trilogy, where he was like, oh no, if I, you know, I have a dream about my wife dying, and then the thing he does is the exact thing that contributes to his wife dying. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not necessarily ordained in the sort of like, often in a chosen one narrative, you have like a prophecy that, you know, calls the chosen one. But I think the fatal flaw sometimes has this element of, you know, this is inevitable. Maybe that's the word Mm -hmm. I'm looking for. There's an inevitability to the fatal flaw narrative. Uh, So let's start with, uh, any examples that you want to call off the top of your head? I, we already named, obviously, the stupid Star Wars prequels, <laughs> which really kind of is an Oedipus thing, right? You know, mm-hmm. you have yeah. somebody who is trying to prevent an outcome and then fulfills that outcome anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so anything else that you can think of off the top of your head? I mean, kind of in that sense... In a way, Voldemort is one. I mean, he gets this prophecy, and it could apply to either Harry or Neville, but he interprets it as being about Harry and therefore brings about his own end by doing that. I don't think he's a great example of just that trope. I think there's lots of other things wrapped up in that character as well. Um, But there's certainly an aspect of that in Voldemort. Um, Other tragic fatal flaw characters I think like all I'm thinking of for the most part are old classic texts because I don't think tragedies are quite as in vogue as they used to be but like Hamlet yes yeah like 
Frankenstein or Faust or mm-hmm. something, you know, you tend to think of tragedies yeah. that way. I actually have not seen this show, so I am guessing that this might be one, and I don't know if it is or not, and I don't know if you've seen this show, and I don't know if you can confirm. So this is the kind of, like, totally well-researched thing that I'm going to spit out on this podcast, but it seems to me like... Walter White from Breaking Bad has the potential to be this kind of character. Yes. Uh, I did see Breaking Bad. Um, and it's definitely the portrait of a man getting deeper and deeper and deeper into morally gray areas to the point where it is pretty arguable whether or not by the time that the show ends that he's just a straight-up villain. You know, he's just like straight-up villain. Um, it is unpopular, not unpopular, I don't want to say it's unpopular, but I do feel like it has fallen out of fashion Mm -hmm. as a story to tell, and I'm not sure why exactly. I think it has to be, at least in part, what these kind of tragic stories leave you with, right? Mm -hmm. Because when we're left with a tragedy um, when you know our heroes or our characters don't get the thing that they want or you know get it and then consequences are dire as a result um, you know the end of a tragedy when you close the book when the lights come up it, you're not left with a good feeling and ultimately there's some kind of lesson that's been imparted, right? What you're supposed to take away from the tragedy is uh, this cautionary um, tale about hubris, about, you know, human failings and human flaws, and to kind of illustrate what happens when you give into them. And it's supposed to be cautionary and ward you off of those things. Um, So I think tragedies are kind of heavy in that way. (laughs) They require... um, a lot of processing and thought and examination on behalf of the reader or the audience member if you're watching a play or something like that. Um, So I don't think they're easy or comfortable. And sometimes we just want easy, comfortable things. (laughs) I think, I mean... Uh, if we think about YA in particular, I think YA is inherently optimistic in terms of the stories that get told in that category. Simply, well, nothing is more tragic than a tragic teen, someone who's sort mm-hmm. of like cut off or, you know, not... The thing, the thing about being a young person is that you hope that they have the, their entire life ahead of them. So to mm-hmm. have a tragic teen story is almost more tragic than an adult tragedy. Yeah. Um, but they, there are some characters, like um, Marie Lu. She wrote the Young Elites trilogy, and that is essentially the story of a villain, the story of Adelina, and she is, in each subsequent book, gets more and more villainous. Although I wouldn't, I mean... I would say that Adelina does get her comeuppance, but she also gets a little bit of a redemption at the end of that. So it doesn't necessarily leave you entirely with this, like, heavy weight. Mm-hmm. I think there is, as with most of Marie's work, I think there's always an element or a kernel of hope in her stories. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
this is not out yet, so sorry about, I'm going to bring this up now, but uh, Julie Dow's Forest of a Thousand Lanterns is also essentially a villain backstory. Um, and it's fascinating to read because it is so dark and because this character is so unlikable, but also you're rooting for them to get even more unlikable. You're like, yes, do it. Do it. <laughs> Succumb to the darkness. More or less, yes. Um, so it's not that they don't exist in YA. It's just that I think that it is simply less common because, you know, you do want a young person to have their entire life ahead of them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And there are certainly tragedies or tragic things that happen in YA that are not tied to the fatal flaw. So, like, The Fault in Our Stars is mm-hmm. not about a fatally flawed character. That book has tragic things happen in it, but it doesn't fall under the umbrella of this particular trope. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now that I think about it, if, like, it's not that it isn't entirely out of fashion. I mean, look at Hamilton as far as... Mm. Hamilton has a fatal flaw. (laughs) Hamilton has a fatal flaw. (laughs) We'll just bleep that out. I swore. Yes, he absolutely has a fatal flaw. Um, And that play ends very tragically. Um, But I would also say it doesn't end like on a downer note either. It It ends tragically, but it certainly gives you an element of hope and your place mm-hmm. in history and all that by the end of the play. So I don't know. Can it's, it's the thing about fatal flaws. And I think it's a little bit of a disservice to say that Greek tragedies are meant as cautionary tales. Cause I don't actually think that is true. I think that the Greek audience, one, they were already familiar with these stories, so they wouldn't walk away with like, Oh, well any new, yeah, any new thing. And in many ways, if we're going with Oedipus, for the first, for the example, Oedipus is a victim of fate rather than his own. Because when we think of fatal flaw and that sort of like pride being a fatal flaw, you think, well, I know better than the gods, and therefore you have to be right. shot down. He's not exactly that kind. He's of, trying to do the right thing. He right. hears about his fate, and he's like, "This is horrible, and I don't want to do this, right. and so I'm going to avoid it." Um, so I think it is a little bit, but I think that. It, and I don't actually know, though, if if books. I mean, I am of the of the school of thought that believes that narratives don't need to have any lessons attached to it. Oh no, absolutely not. I mean, what cautionary tale would you say Hamilton has? And that's certainly a story about a character with a fatal flaw <laughs> and a death and a death wish Talking for sure. Too much death wish, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't know that it necessarily always has to impart a lesson. I guess that just for me, I think I seek meaning in tragedies because otherwise I can't bear them. Mm. And so the way that I personally cope with tragic things is to try to find some kind of resonance within them. But that is not necessarily why tragedies are written. So to conflate those two things is probably not wise. Why do you think tragedies are written? I don't have a good answer for that. <laughs> I mean, I don't know why anything is written, you know, to an extent. Right. You know, why is any type of story written? I, I don't have an answer for any of those. Um, I think that, broadly speaking, you can say that many people write to 
explore or describe humanity. And, you know, tragedies are a part of humanity and being human because all people are flawed and, you know, in some ways powerless over certain things. And so tragic things happen by our own making or by outside forces. Yeah, I would agree that I think tragedies are written to try and find meaning in the tragedy. Like you, like you, you know, you want to ascribe meaning, so you think maybe this is a cautionary tale. Maybe then, whoever wrote the tragedy is trying to make sense of something, mm. and it's it's often why I think tragedy is often the ending. I don't walk away feeling like tragic endings are bleak necessarily, because I feel like there's a difference between a tragic ending. And a bleak ending. <laughs> yes. Because, um, you know, to bring back Hamilton or, or the young elites, there's that element of hope at the end that there is uh, either redemption or that history will remember you differently or that your place in history is important despite all the screw-ups you've made in your life. Like, all those sorts of things, I think. Or there's just a sense of comeuppance that comes from seeing, you know, like a truly irredeemable person get what they deserve that's mm-hmm. going to spoil the end of Breaking Bad for you guys. Really kind of, in my opinion, what happens to Walter White. And ultimately, I also don't think he gets his comeuppance enough. <laughs> I don't think he was punished enough, but that is me. Um, but it's very, very rare to have a truly bleak ending to a story and the only book that I've read that I can think of that is what I would call bleak is The Road by Cormac McCarthy oh (laughs) how would you define bleak what would you say is bleak I just I mean (laughs) um I don't I don't know that I have an answer for that either. I think when I think of things that are bleak, I think of just nowhere further to go. It just leaves you in this place of barrenness, of, you know, being stagnant, of no change, of no hope, of no glimmer of things ever getting better or changing. I think, yeah, no hope is definitely probably a big defining factor of of a bleak ending of any kind. Okay, let's go back to a story that you and I both have issues with how it ended, (laughs) Um, (laughs) which is the ending of The Hunger Games. Oh, yes. Yes. Which, I mean, if you were to classify, The Hunger Games has many different archetypal narratives kind of weaving in and out of it. I would say that it definitely has an aspect of a chosen one narrative. A reluctant mm-hmm. chosen one, certainly, because Katniss doesn't want to be part of this rebellion at all. Um, I don't. I wouldn't say that she has a fatal flaw, necessarily. Um, but I found the ending bleak. So, so bleak. I hate the end of this book. I understand it, which is different... I think we talked before about like what makes a, a emotional arc satisfying. Right. I, I don't find the ending to this book satisfying. I understand it. Um, the author, Susan Collins, chose to explore the real and lasting um, post-traumatic stress that Katniss 
experiences as a result of everything that happens to her. And that is a valid choice and in some senses was really well done because it was unflinching and there is no magical solution. Katniss doesn't get over it, um, you know, just because things change. You know, in a lot of ways it's commendable that she chose to write it that way. Uh, but I don't find it emotionally satisfying at all. And I find the ending of that book just to be so horrifically bleak on every possible level. Like, we have this epilogue of Katniss somewhat further into her adulthood at this point, and she and Peeta are married, and they both still suffer from um, the incredible post-traumatic stress um, that they've of all the horrible things that they've witnessed and experienced and perpetrated and been part of and been victim of. And they have two children, which Katniss didn't want to have, but kind of had because Peta wanted to have them. And she's talking about them in the epilogue um, about how I didn't really want these kids, but we have them. And she refers to them as the girl and the boy. Yeah. No names, <laughs> not by their names at all. Uh, which is bleak and horrible. And I think the worst part about it is that Katniss is an emotionally distant parent, which is what she hated about her own mother, mother that her mother had suffered this horrible loss and was just destroyed by her own grief and was not present for her children. And now Katniss is doing that same thing um, in terms of her own children. And so it's just such a bleak ending. And we know that things have changed in that we know that President Snow is dead and we know that Coin is dead and, you know, that we know the Hunger Games are no more. But I think Mocking Jay as a book goes a long way to show us that um, that the potential replacement government is not necessarily going to be any better for the people. It's just going to be different. It's not going to usher in a new utopia or a new democracy necessarily. We don't get a glimpse of what the world looks like. We just know there are no hunger games anymore. That's the only thing we know. That's the only thing we know. I mean, it's really awful. (laughs) The ending is, is, is incredibly haunting as well, simply because the last line of that book is something about at least those are the only games that they play and she's referring to her children playing and it's not the Hunger Games. It's a, right. I don't know if Suzanne Collins intended this to be a hopeful note because I didn't find it hopeful at all. I found it awfully haunting and bleak. In a funny way, the actual ending of the book itself, where she and Peter are talking about their relationship, is more hopeful than the epilogue. <laughs> I think because the end of The Hunger Games, you know, the direct narrative and not the epilogue, which takes place however many years later, but, like, you know, she, Peter, return home. They are obviously horrifically scarred and dealing with, you know, PTSD and trying to find their way back to themselves and back to being human. And mm-hmm. that they're working on it together, and there is something about that narrative yes. that's being told in this this part of the ending of Mockingjay that isn't bleak at all, and then, and then the epilogue just like slaps you in the face. It's like, nah, they're working on it, but it's bleak. Yeah, it's just bleak. Yeah, 
It is. It's just the way it, it is. is. It was not. I was so angry when I finished that book. It just was not emotionally what I wanted from that story. Which is not to say, again, I, I know people for whom that book meant a great deal because um, they felt, um, you know, their own personal experiences with tragedy, with loss, um, with post-traumatic stress. Um, they felt Suzanne Collins honored that by... Um, you know, truly uh, showing it to be a lifelong struggle that changes people irrevocably. And so I do know people that found the ending, including that blog, uh, very powerful. And so that's not to say that, you know, that my dissatisfaction must be everyone's dissatisfaction, but it was not the ending that I wanted from that book. I, you know, I'm not sure... I think, honestly, I would have been fine with it just ending without the epilogue. <laughs> I would have been, I think it would have been better for me. But I think, too, there was a lot about the third book that wasn't what I was hoping for. Oh, same. In general. I would agree. So, you know, I mean, I think if we got the book that we got and it ended on the epilogue, I would have been better. But it still wouldn't have been the book that I had hoped that it was. My problem with the last book of The Hunger Games is that I felt like Katniss spends most of it a passenger in her own story. And yes. that, I, again, I can see the, why that narrative choice was made. It just kind of was not. I wanted her to do something with her life. But again, like, you know, if you're suffering from PTSD, sometimes you can't. And I understand that, too. So there's, this is not a criticism of that at all. It's obviously, as Kelly and I had mentioned, this is not the book that we wanted. But in, in all fairness, I'm not sure that I know what book I would have wanted. I think I, think I wanted Katniss to be a willing and active participant in the revolution. I think is what I wanted. I understand why she wasn't, but I think I expected her to be more of an active leader. See, I never got that sense from her. I never thought that she wanted to take the lead, so I always thought that the happiest thing for Katniss would be to disappear. Yeah. Go off into the woods like she wishes she'd done that first day. Yeah. Pretty much just riding off into the sunset is essentially the happiest ending that I could think of for Katniss mm -hmm. as opposed to staying behind and just like having to suffer through her trauma with somebody else. So, I mean, again, like I'm not sure what book I would have wanted because that would have been a totally different book for me to see her riding off into the sunset at the end of the story. So, and, and that would have made the book about her legacy as the Mockingjay rather than Katniss's story. And I definitely think that The Hunger Games is Katniss's story from beginning mm -hmm. all the way to the incredibly bleak epilogue. Um, so, you know, there are trade-offs mm -hmm. about about that ending, but it, that I do consider bleak. And it is rare to find mm -hmm. a story that I would consider bleak in YA in particular. Children's fiction is, like I said, generally more optimistic um, even the end of The Fault in Our Stars, which is not a fatal, fatal flaw book, but a tragedy. And, but the ending of that book is hopeful. You know, it's, it's cathartic in that you've cried and you've, you've felt mm -hmm. whatever way about these characters. But, um, you know, and it's really a story about learning to move on in many ways, however, whatever length of time you have left. And that is an inherently hopeful 
thing as mm-hmm. opposed to I'm existing. <laughs> like, yeah. Which is somehow far more bleak than almost anything else that I can think of. I'm just existing. Which is, which is rough. Yeah. So if someone were to go about it to try and write a fatal flaw narrative, mm. what do you think are, are characteristics or things that you would have, not have to have, but what the fatal flaw narrative is trying to examine? I think the thing about fatal flaw stories is that there is always a moment or a turning point at which point the character could resist and the story could go another way and that the fatal flaw really is about them succumbing to that fatal flaw and choosing an action that sets them down this downward spiral path I think that it's not you know that the character in some way shape or form makes an active choice to to do this thing that sets them over the edge that they could have chosen otherwise you know it's like with Hamilton you get to that point and you're like don't write the Reynolds pamphlet <laughs> like there's no reason for you to write don't the Reynolds pamphlet Aaron Burr. do it don't do you it know? but then he sits down and does it and you know and it's like it it has to be i think one of the hallmarks of those types of stories is that it is about a succumbing a giving in um in that way where and i think a lot of times too you see that build up where you know we see the person's flaw you know from the beginning and we see them acting on it or resisting it and kind of in minor ways and building up and building up and kind of crescendoing until we get to this peak moment where the final choice is going to be made that's going to set them down a path from which they can't return. The why you would write, I mean, again, as we'd mentioned earlier in the podcast, we don't know why anybody writes anything, right? You write it because you want to write it, because you want to explore something. Um, But the fatal flaw story, I think, is definitely something people would choose to write when they want to explore one particular characteristic or trait that is the fatal flaw. In many ways, I think a fatal flaw narrative is a really deep character study. Mm. You know, for all that Hamilton is, it is a historical play and it's a musical and it, you know, it shows us the events, you know, the, the life and death of this one particular man, but it's really a study about his character and his inability to say no basically is kind of really you know it's every every single thing in that play is basically Hamilton yes that's that's his <laughs> response to everything um and that's kind of this in a, you know a lack of restraint is essentially kind of what the study is in this in this play perhaps so and in the case of like the young elites for example i think that book is a study in I think that book is really a study in desire and I think not necessarily a study in, you know, romantic or sexual, you know, but it's a study in I want this regardless of whether or not I deserve this. Uh So it's a study in desire or lust or whatever. That just made me think 
of um, Veruca Salt, and that actually all the kids <laughs> who don't make it in Willy Wonka have a fatal flaw that bring them down. Yes, <laughs> yes, it's one of I, you know, and I think it's probably one of the deadly sins. <laughs> You've got Augustus Gloop, who's a glutton. He's gluttony. Yep. Uh, you have Veruca, who is greed. Greed. Um, Mike TV is sloth. Yep. And Violet Beauregard. Maybe Vanity? I think probably Vanity because she's like a champion or whatever and she's like proud of that that status. I'm trying to think if there are any other kids that were missing. I think that's everybody. Yeah. Yeah, but they all definitely have that one thing (laughs) that That brings them down. That brings them down and and only Charlie's is left at the end because of his innate goodness. It's not even his innate goodness. I think it's just his, it's just like my life has been too terrible for me to develop any fatal flaws beforehand. Uh, Although he did do that one thing that should have disqualified him. Yep, he gets the champagne uh, drink thing, the fizzy whatever. Yeah, that makes but him. They get fly. out. They get out of it on on his own. He and Grandpa Joe can solve their conundrum themselves, whereas everybody else needed couldn't get out of their their own issue. So his ingenuity saved him. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I always, as a kid, that used to bother me because I was like, well, mm-hmm. everyone else got kicked out of the factory and you messed up and you still get to stay. Well, that's not fair. <laughs> like, If you can make a mistake, how come the other kids have to go home? Um, this is the kind of brilliant thing about Roald Dahl's books. Not that... Um, not that Charlie having to stay is is a brilliant thing, but that all of his books are kind of just populated with deeply unlikable people. Like, all of them. And the protagonist is, like, the only one who's not even unlikable so much as just, like, vaguely decent. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, their one defining characteristic is that they are vaguely decent. That's it. Um... Any other things about Fatal Flaws that we want to maybe poke at or discuss? or Because, as we said, the Fatal Flaw narrative encompasses a lot of stories. But I'm trying to think if mm-hmm. there's any that end happily. Because we are looking at them in, in the sort of lens of tragedy, right? Mm. Um, where the main character succumbs to the Fatal Flaw and it's therefore a tragic ending... But can you think of any that maybe are a fatal flaw narrative, but don't end that way? I think maybe the Magician series. Hmm. Quentin is deeply, deeply, deeply flawed. Um, but his, you know, fatal flaw is um, his self-centeredness. He deeply believes that he is special and that you know, he is the only one and the most important one. And he's just very self-centered in this way. And it continually leads him into trouble. And it does bring him quite low and bring him down and hurts quite a lot of other people in his path. Um, but I don't think that series ends tragically. I, I mean, I can't speak to the magicians having been barely able to finish the first one, but, um, I really want just a book about Julia because she was so clearly the best character. But 
yeah, I guess fatal flaw narratives that end happily. I'm trying to think if there are any TV shows that maybe illustrate this example. Um, this is not a good example, but this is the only one I can think of a character with a genuine fatal flaw that sort of ends happily, but really should have kind of ended tragically because the show went on too long is The X-Files. Um, Mulder is definitely the main character of the show, and he has... A huge martyr complex is really his big thing. I think throughout the entire series, he has a lot of guilt about what happened to his sister when he was young. And a lot of that show is him sort of unraveling what actually happened that night. If he was responsible with, you know, all the sort of complicated, messy things around his family. And spoiler for the X-Files, you guys, I'm going to spoil this show if you haven't seen it. This is a 20-year-old show, so I'm, I feel like the the window on spoilers has passed. Um, the end of season seven, in a sort of full circle way, he gets abducted by aliens. And that's the way that season ends. And I hated that ending in in a personal on a per, in a personal way because I really 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 desperately wanted him and Scully to end up together and I was like well now they can't because he's abducted by aliens, um, but I think in terms of an ending it's very fitting that entire season Mulder is getting closure on what happened to his sister we never truly uh-huh. truly find out what happened to Samantha but he has put that narrative to bed they even go all the way back to the site of their first case in that season and that's the site where he gets abducted from um i thought of one more fatally flawed character that gets a happy ending hmm. bill murray and groundhog day <laughs> true very true <laughs> i mean his fatal flaw is kind of that he's a dick yes but. um and also that whole movie is in many ways like essentially a story about purgatory <laughs> Mm Because he's stuck until he's able to move on and and learn how to not be a dick, basically. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's definitely true. I'm trying to think if there's any other kind of story where you would say is a fatal flaw narrative that isn't a tragedy. I wouldn't even say that... Groundhog. Well, I guess you could say Groundhog Day is a fatal flaw, but Groundhog Day is definitely one of those. You're in this position until you learn something more, like mm-hmm. like yeah. Lost. <laughs> what would you classify Lost narratively? Infuriating. Um, <laughs> I think it started out as a mystery, and then they abandon it halfway through, and that's why it bothers me because I feel like Lost is so clearly set up as a mystery, but then they change their minds and it's not a mystery anymore. Um, I think it's I I mean everybody is flawed and the show is essentially just deep character studies on all of them uh, with the plot not really mattering the deeper in that you go. So I don't know what kind of, I mean it's a drama that is definitely drama. That is definitely a purgatory story. It's definitely yeah. everybody has to work out their issues before they move on. Narrative, um, and the thing that drives me nuts about Lost is that everyone guessed it from like the first season. Oh yeah, and, and they kept denying, and they it. kept denying, it. and I was like, 
there are many we should do an episode about just lost and all the ways it went wrong um oh god <laughs> i think we talked about lost last week too we were just like the show is terrible and yet and yet you know, like um but I would consider that, like, kind of, you know, similar to Groundhog's Day, Groundhog Day, that everybody has some issue or some flaw or something that they need to resolve before they move on to heaven or whatever it is in this, mm-hmm. in this yeah. universe. So, any last thoughts on Fatal Flaw Narratives? Okay. No. Awesome. Okay, we can move on. What are you working on? Work stuff. I have uh, some manuscripts I'm reading and things like that. It's the summer slump. I am start finally starting to feel it. Uh, so it's hard to focus on work right now, but there is work to focus on. So it's really pretty much it. And I made a chore chart for my kid, which is a different kind of work, but it was really fun. <laughs> it took me like two hours, which is preposterous, but it was adorable. It's a little rainbow and I'm very proud of it. It was very cute. It's on Kelly's Instagram. So you guys can (laughs) go definitely find it. It's very cute. What about you? What are you working on? Um, I am, I have not gotten edits back on uh, book two yet, but I am working on that. Um, and I, the rest was good, but also bad because I opened up that manuscript and was like, Oh God, this is awful. Like I can't look at it. It's so terrible. But at the same time, the terribleness makes me want to fix it. So, you know, that was good in that way. Um, and I have, don't have news yet that I can announce about the secret project, but hopefully soon I can say something about it. Um, other than that, I'm, I am home in Los Angeles. Uh, so like, again, I'm going to apologize for the audio quality, but, uh, some relaxing mostly in addition to doing some writing, uh, drawing as well. I brought my uh, tablet, my computer tablet to draw on, and which I haven't had a chance to do in a very long time, so that was nice too. And that's pretty much it, what I'm working on. So, what are you reading? Nothing. Again, still. I have had um, nothing come through from my library. I'm just waiting for my... I'm in purgatory myself, waiting for library holds to come through. And uh, which is fair because honestly at this point if they did come through they would just be sitting there unread right now um, but yeah no nope, haven't read anything what about you uh, well I am rereading not rereading but I am reading for the first time from beginning to end Shadow Song <laughs> this is why I'm like oh god why is this so bad but it's also like trying to turn off that part of my brain and to just try and absorb this as the story as opposed to just Mm -hmm. what feels like a Frankenstein monster of cobbled parts um so I'm trying to look look at it as a story so that is actually what I am reading is is my own book um which is a particularly painful process regardless of even if I had written this book under ideal situation I think it, it's just a painful process. There is, a, at least for me, there's a point where I just cannot read my book again. I don't think I've read Winter Song in like at least eight months. I don't think I've read my book in like eight months. I just can't. Like, I can't bear to do it again. So, um, yeah, that's it. I don't have anything new particularly that I'm trying to figure out what I'm doing with all of my days but to be honest my days despite being home and on vacation are relatively full 
So I don't, in I am still trying to keep to decent hours, which means that after dinner, I hang out with my family a little bit, and I'm asleep by like 9 p.m. So, mm-hmm. yeah. No complaints there. Nope. Uh, I don't think we have any questions this week. Which is fine. We can talk about our off-menu recommendations. Mm-hmm. Do you have any? Uh, well, this is specific to Los Angeles, so if we have any readers who are in L.A., I would definitely recommend the Broad Museum. Mm. It's spelled like broad, but it's pronounced broad. Um, this is, I guess... Eli Brode was a some eccentric billionaire who had a bunch of money to collect a lot of artwork, and they donated their collection, the Brodes donated their collection to the museum. It's free, um, and it's modern pop contemporary art. Modern being anything that was, you know, I guess post-war, post-World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of art, you know, Famously, there are uh, there. This museum has pieces by Keith Haring, and Jean-Michel Basquiat, and Roy Lichtenstein. So, kind of like pretty well-known artists from like the 60s, 70s, and 80s. It's very, very cool as a building itself. Actually, it's kind of um, designed. There's like a first floor gallery, and then the second floor is where all the administrative offices are, as well as storage, where they store pieces in the collection that are not on display. But all of that is open in that it's all glass and it's all transparent, so you can literally see into the inner workings of this museum, which was pretty cool. Mm. If you're in Los Angeles, the Infinity Room by Yayoi Kusama is here until the fall. So, oh, your pictures of that were amazing. Oh my god, it is amazing. So, the Broad Museum, you do have to reserve your tickets in advance for the museum itself, not just the Infinity Room. Um, and I went on standby and I got there early and I still had to wait like two hours and some change and change before I got in. And then I made an immediate beeline toward because uh, you have to sort of line s- sign up separately for the Infinity Room. And almost immediately after I signed up, I, I did sign up, and they're like, your time is up in 94 minutes. And I was like, great. Um, almost immediately after I had signed up, it all the time slots were filled up. So if you didn't mm-hmm. get there early, you, you missed out. Because only one or two people can be in the infinity room at any given time, and you only have 45 seconds to be in there. So and it's small, it's very tiny. So you could, you go in, it's forty five seconds, it's on a loop, and the lights uh, change and they you know have different patterns. It's but it's gorgeous. So I think she's done infinity rooms elsewhere throughout the country, and I think some of them might be permanent permanent installations. So I would definitely check it out. I'll put a link to the artist's name in the show notes. So yeah, that's my off menu recommendation this week. I don't know. Do you have anything, Kelly? Awesome. I don't. I did not go into any museums or watch anything or do anything cool. Just had my had my day. It's my birthday on Saturday, and your birthday was last week. It was last week. I went to a nice dinner. Did you do anything nice? You did. You Instagrammed it. It looked amazing. Yeah, this is the library tower, which is also, you might have seen these things in L.A., but there's like a huge clear slide at the top of this building. 
and it's from the 70th floor um, and it's like a clear slide. So I, and I don't like heights. So I know everyone's like, but you jump out of planes. I was like, it's different. But, um, I might do it anyway. I mean, I'll always do anything once. That is my philosophy. Mm-hmm. I will always try anything at least once. So I might do the, the library tower slide, but eh, we'll see. Um, yeah, this restaurant is on the 70, 71st floor of, of the library tower. And it's, you know, got great views of smoggy downtown Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's all I have for this week in terms of my birthday was pretty low key. I'm old now, so there's mm-hmm. not like another milestone yeah. for like eight years to look forward to. So, <laughs> yep. Yeah. All right. So we got one new review, didn't we? We did. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Made my day. All right. Why don't you read it out loud, Kelly? Okay. Let me grab it. Uh, um. Okay. This review is from Crazy Quill, like talking to my best writing pals. I love this podcast. I'm a published author and have gotten so much out of the few sessions I've already listened to, especially the talks on tropes and archetypes, stuff not normally discussed in the classes and workshops I've taken. I feel like I've made new friends listening to these ladies. Highly highly recommend. Yay! Yay! Thank you, Crazy Quill. I really cannot overstate how much joy it brings me when you guys leave a review. Like, it is wild how much joy I get out of these things. I get excited. I do a little dance. I text JJ. Yep. I'm, like, very, very, very happy when these happen. So I mean, admittedly, we love the stars, but (laughs) Kelly loves a written review. (laughs) I do. I do. External validation. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes. Awesome. All right. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be continuing our archetypes discussion by talking about romance and different archetypal romances. So as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, on Twitter at bookishchick or on my website, penandparsley.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Retribution Rails, forthcoming November 7th. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com, send us an ask through Tumblr, or using the hashtag AskPubCrawl. Thanks so much for listening. Bye! Bye! Bye.